0: Welcome to the Public Philosophy Series for Living Philosophy, which explores with academic guests philosophical ideas that matter to our everyday life. The Public Philosophy episodes are distinguishable from our regular episodes by the bespoke thumbnail artwork provided by Dentura Studios. As always, if you enjoy this episode or have enjoyed our past episodes, please take the time to rate and review Living Philosophy wherever you are streaming content. I'm your host, Dr. Todd May. There's a social media question that has been shared widely on Facebook. It asks, if you could delete one thing from the earth, what would it be? You wouldn't be surprised to find the majority of responses involve humans and or human effects in and on the world. At the time of this podcast, there were over 801,000 responses, such as deleting Putin, Trump, Joe Biden, religion, money, Narcissism, hate, Facebook itself, pain, politicians, lawyers, greed, poverty, and the list goes on. The variety of responses led me and a few others to think that while the majority of responses are specific, they could probably be captured under a general idea namely, where there's a diagnosis of a real problem in the world, chances are it has been caused by humans or specific to human existence. And so one logical conclusion is that getting serious about preventing real problems would entail simply removing humans altogether. Perhaps this conclusion sounds a bit callous, but what I find interesting about this idea is how it asks us to see humans in no special role or privilege in relation to the natural world. In fact, it takes most things which we deem to be important as humans and turns them on their head. For instance, we have little difficulty in removing non-human animals if we take them to be pests or threats. But let's turn this around. If animals had a more developed consciousness and the ability to mobilize in the way that humans can in times of war, would animals seek to remove humans based on the same reasoning? Humans are pests. It's not hard to imagine this scenario when one considers that of all the human deaths in the world, mosquitoes account for about half of those in terms of the diseases that can spread. It's the stuff for a science fiction novella, but there's much more to what underwrites and drives our ability to admit other non-human animals into the genuine sphere of concern. In philosophical debate, one real question is whether animals have moral status. That is not to ask whether animals have morals, but whether some aspect of them demands that humans regard them as being morally significant in some way. One of the most common responses is that because animals are sentient, that is, feel and experience pain and suffering, they do in fact warrant moral consideration. But even this view, even if it is a step forward in our moral outlook, hides beneath it assumptions about the experience of pain and suffering that might be still too focused on what it's like to experience pain and suffering as a human. Whence the next philosophical question. How can we know what other animals experience as pain and suffering if we're human? And these questions are not just purely academic, they have real consequences and effects in terms of how we as humans relate to most things. And it would seem that if we can't understand those creatures that dwell alongside us, then we really can't understand what it means to live the kind of existence we have. And this would truly be an animal crisis. Perhaps philosophy can help us gain a clearer understanding of what is at stake and how we tend to relate to and represent animals. Our guests for this episode are Alice Crary and Lori Gruen, who are co-authors of the book Animal Crisis with Polity Press, published this year, 2022. It's both an academic and public philosophical analysis of issues central to the ethical, behavioral, and economic relation we have with animals. Alice Crary is University Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at the New School for Social Research in New York and visiting fellow at All Souls at the University of Oxford. Alice has published widely in Metaethics, Moral Psychology, Normative Ethics, Feminism, and Critical Animal Studies. Lori Gruen is William Griffin Professor of Philosophy at Wesleyan University in Connecticut and has published over a dozen books in Ethics, Feminism, Environmentalism, and Political Philosophy. She is a Fellow of the Hastings Center for Bioethics and a Faculty Fellow at the Center for Animals and Public Policy within the Cummings School of Veterinary Medicine at Tufts University. Alice, welcome to Living Philosophy. Thank you. Laurie, welcome to Living Philosophy. It's great to be here. Thanks. Your book, Animal Crisis, is divided into seven chapters, each beginning with a factual story demonstrative of what is wrong with the human relation to and treatment of animals. Each story then acts as a way to identify and unpack underlying philosophical issues and perhaps my favorite chapter is the one looking at suffering in the treatment of cows as a way to question the principles of the moral theory of utilitarianism. If we take a step back from these stories and philosophical analyses, can you say what for each of you was the final straw that made the animal crisis an issue you had to address both personally and professionally as philosophers? Lori, perhaps you would like to go first.
1: Part of it, the reason that we were moved to to do this work is the ecological crisis itself. Species are becoming extinct in remarkable numbers. Uh, Some estimates suggest it's a thousand times faster than they would be going extinct without humans around. We're now in what's being called the sixth mass extinction. Billions of birds have vanished in nearly all parts of North America, and another billion animals are said to have died in the fires in Australia from 2019 to 2020. So, anthropogenic activity that is human-caused environmental destruction is really plunging humans and other animals into a crisis. And so there is the ecological crisis that's one of the motivations for our wanting to write this book. But the other crisis is a crisis of thought. One of the devastating factors that led to this ecological crisis is our distorted sense of ourselves, humans, and our relationships with others, attitudes about the world are so distorted by ideologies in our view that don't capture the value and the lives of the value of the lives and relationships of humans and other animals so these distortions seem to permeate much of the work that's been done to date in animal ethics and they also structure many of the philosophical discussions of social justice. So we were convinced that the ideological pitfalls have to be contested and exposed. And so that's part of what we wanted to do in our book. We've both written about animals. We've written books and articles that urge us to reconsider the ways that we see and think about and engage with our relationships with other animals, but we also thought that a collaboration would enrich our respective commitments to critically interrogate these structures uh, that enable all this destruction of animals, of humans that are out in out groups, as well as the planet.
0: I imagine that cognitive dissonance, if that's the right phrase, is one of the things that was of concern It certainly is a concern with me. And when I was reading your book, I was thinking, there are these moments and I, and media works in and it has a double-edged sword or is a double-edged sword in a way because it has a tremendous power to present crises in a certain way. So when the when the wildfires were running rampant in Australia, they're showing the destruction to animals and to their habitat. And so it, it becomes very pressing. And then, you know, two weeks later, it just disappears and it sort of, it's no longer there. And I think for a lot of people, especially for people like me, you go through these periods of, you see how pressing things are and then you just feel that everything that's going on isn't part of your world anymore. There's other, maybe other concerns intervene, but I don't know if the, if part of the book was focused on trying to correct that cognitive dissonance, if there's a way to allow for a coincidence between how we see ourselves and what's going on directly with the animals and the natural habitat around this?
2: I think that's a fair way of describing um, part of the motive for the book. I think Laurie did a really good job at sketching some of the intellectual and political background that we share, that, that we brought to bear as colleagues and acquaintances who um, already knew each other as working on these topics, and that led us to the to the point at which we thought this is the book we want to write. When you talk about cognitive dissonance, one of the ways in which we're addressing it that Laurie just brought out is in terms of critique of ideologies that obscure our view of not only of the extent of the animal crisis, but also of its connection with systematic harms to human beings. Uh, There's a kind of mundane background to the writing of the book, too, which seems worth going over because it's actually connected in a sort of discipline-bound way with your question about cognitive dissonance and and actually may be helpful for explaining how the book happened in a really sort of day-to-day production (laughs) way, um, which is simply that we were together in the spring of 2018, and we had been asked to do a review article on animal ethics. And we actually started writing that article. And we started thinking about the topics and things that we would have to go over to survey the kinds of things that we knew our professional colleagues had been doing over decades. And I think there, what we thought was, this isn't what we want to be doing. Um, and in some ways, going back over that ground for us, meant going back over a ground that we thought had in various ways become disconnected with uh, the urgency of the animal crisis. And so in a sense, could be seen as an expression, even where we're sitting and talking about animal ethics, an expression of the cognitive dissonance that strikes us when we try to keep in focus what it is that we're doing. And uh, that's where we got the idea that what we needed, and this is what this book is, is rethinking of animal ethics, one that rethinks both the philosophical field and also its realization and social protest movements.
0: So one of the things I love about your book is not only how it balances the f- uh, public philosophical side in addressing issues that matter to us in our everyday lives, as I like to say, but it also manages to engage with a lot of academic debate within moral theory Uh, one of the targets is utilitarianism. And I might be jumping ahead a bit here, but one of the things that's so prominent that will come up in a discussion about whether or not animals warrant some kind of moral consideration, as I mentioned in the introductory comments, is that because animals feel pain and suffering or are sentient, therefore they do warrant moral consideration. And utilitarianism, at least within Peter Singer's work, who's, if audience members don't know, he's one of the main uh, voices within utilitarianism that speaks about animal animal rights and considering them as uh, having moral status, uses sentience as the main criterion by which we should say, we're well, right, so they feel pain and suffering, we ought to give them moral consideration. But you have a, a different take on this, both of you in the book. And can you speak a little bit more to how your disagreement with utilitarianism arises and how it plays out?
2: I think Lori may want to say more about utilitarianism, but I'm going to say something about how attention to the experience and suffering of animals, there's a point of similarity, how attention to that suffering is a methodological principle for what we're doing in our book. And there's a, an, a major point of difference, which is that, so I'm not going to say much about utilitarianism, but a major point of difference is that we're not treating that suffering as a neutral datum to be incorporated into an antecedently formulated theory in the way that utilitarian animal ethicists do. For us, discerning suffering of animals is part of the adoption of an appropriate critical stance. Here's a nice sketch of a a part of the book. It's not the part you have on your mind, Todd, I think, but there's a part of the book in which we approach these issues in a way that might be helpful to people through the 20th century history of studies of animal minds that go kind of like behaviorism to anti-behavioristic reactions including ethology, and then cognitive ethology, and finally, some thoughtful variations on cognitive ethology. And that leads us to studies of animal behavior, where it's often an unspoken assumption that behavior to which we have perceptual access can't in itself be psychologically meaningful. And that assumption, if for any philosophers listening, is the source of familiar philosophical themes about how skepticism about the minds of others is always possible. But whether we're concerned with human beings or non-human animals, the assumption we think is belied by significant work showing that a stance informed by an appreciation of the life form at issue is actually necessary to bring creatures' mental capacities in view. So here's a way of bringing it together to see animal suffering for us is already to have arrived at an ethical stance that can guide intervention. And this point gets made, it's, it's a variation of a point that gets made with regard to the suffering of oppressed humans in the work of radical feminists and also founding members of the Frankfurt School, critical social theorists from whom we're taking
1: our cue in calling the project of our book, Critical Animal Theory. And I just want to say, I think Alice put that really beautifully. And I think that I just want to add one particular concern about utilitarianism, because Alice promised I would, and that is that one of the things that we're quite concerned about is a uh, a flawed or distorted sensibility that utilitarianism and utilitarians bring to the problem of animal suffering. And the, and it fundamentally abstracts from the full life of the beings in front of us, whether they're human beings or non-human beings, and their relationships. So there's this sort of abstraction, a point of view of the universe that doesn't focus in on what's right in front of us, what we can see directly about their suffering, sure, but also some other aspects of their lives and their relationships that they care about, that they find meaningful, or that we care about and that we find meaningful. And so utilitarianism doesn't actually have what I would think of as the moral perceptual resources to address the kinds of concerns that we're expressing in animal crisis.
0: One of the things that is compelling about utilitarianism, at least on the face of it, is that it's concerned with the greatest level of happiness, which I think when most people hear, yeah, that's great. We should all, you know, that that sounds like a great thing to be concerned about. If if the, the aggregate happiness of the society was being promoted, then that truly must be a good thing. And then as you delve more, more deeply into utilitarianism, it requires this kind of measurement and calculate a lot of assumptions. One is that we can measure happiness. We can give it a number and that everyone's going to be experiencing a particular kind of happiness in the same way. And then, of course, now we have the problem of trying to understand how, how how animals or non-human animals are experiencing happiness but this level of abstraction slowly creeps in as you describe it just sort of okay it starts out really convincing I, I think philip afoot made this comment about it seems compelling at first but then something goes terribly wrong and suddenly instead of being concerned about happiness you're just concerned about making that calculation and measurement and then as you point out rightly in your book at least from my point of view uh, the, the problem of making these sacrifices just suddenly you move from being concerned about happiness in humans and animals too, we can sacrifice these animals or humans because it's still contributing to this measurement of happiness that we have. And so to move back from that kind of level of abstraction, can you say more about the the kinds of ideas or even if they're methodological or more theoretical about how we can re-engage with those in front of us, not just humans and not just non-human animals, but maybe even Um, If we want to see how things are going poorly within the natural environment, how we can close that cognitive dissonance, as I mentioned uh, at the start.
2: I thought of something to say in relation to the comments that you were making, which did strike me as particularly suggestive about parts of animal ethics that we're criticizing, but possibly Lori would like to follow up
1: directly on the last question. I think that there is a really important sense in which what we're trying to do in the book is not... Of course, ignore the importance of suffering. It's actually quite an achievement in itself. Around maybe 40 years ago, 50 years ago, when animal ethics got off the ground, that the idea that animals suffer wasn't on everybody's radar. It wasn't something people were aware of. It wasn't something that people were able to see or appreciate or acknowledge. And so the initial work in animal ethics, which as you say, was done in a largely utilitarian vein, helped us all to recognize that there are sentient beings amongst us that are suffering. We need to attend to them. That, I think, is one of the big achievements of early animal ethics, and as you say, Todd, I think there's a sense in which there's something quite appealing about the thought that we should prevent unnecessary suffering. Of course, that's very appealing moral view that we should promote well-being. Of course, that's an extraordinarily Um, compelling value to move towards. But how to do that exactly is where animal crisis intervenes and suggests that what we have is a series of relationships, beings before us, both human and non-human, who are suffering, but they're not suffering from our distinct, particular, discrete actions. They're suffering from structures and institutions that are designed precisely to cause that kind of suffering and injustice. And so this is a critique that we make in the book that is the resources of which are not available to many of the more standard animal ethics views like utilitarianism.
2: Laurie's given a good start to a kind of tour of... Are uh, I, w- I would say the book, we, we we try really hard to do some critical work towards the opening of the book. And then we also try to have most of the book be a positive story about how we'd like to engage with the animal crisis. So, so I don't want to overemphasize the extent to which there's this critical dimension, but she's bringing out how there's layers. So th- there's the genuine contribution of early utilitarian animal ethics, um, drawing attention to suffering, and then I'm thinking of that essay of Philippa Foots, you, you mentioned, where she says something like, yeah, well, they've, they've gotten part of morality, but then they have confused it by treating it as the whole of the morality, as though they're never questions of, of justice. And one of the things that happens in animal ethics is you have... People whose interventions are, are, are the ones they're recommending are only based on the elimination of suffering. They're welfarist in that sense. And there's a serious critique of them that they often ignore questions of justice. And one of the things that Laurie's doing, bringing out these layers is saying, and often exploring those questions of justice means exploring social mechanisms that regularly reproduce the very harms in question. And there are even deeper layers where You might think that animal ethicists raising questions about the appropriate complement of rights that animals and also humans should have to avoid these circumstances of injustice. I haven't even gone deeply enough into um, looking at the history of our institutions in order to be able to understand the sources of the injustices. So so ultimately, the book has a pretty deep dive, even though I think it is very accessible. It comes on slowly as we move through.
0: I don't know if this is the best example to pick from your book uh, to help illustrate the relationship between humans' history of ideas, our distortions, our distorted relationship to animals and ignoring suffering in a certain way. But you open, I think it's the, um, I'm trying to think it's the second chapter, the one mentioning the orangutans, but one of the key connections there you make is the harm done to animals within large institutions. And with the case of orangutans, it's the palm oil industry, and then the destruction of the orangutans and their habitat, and also how this harms humans. And we, we tend not to see clear lines of distinction. The two are intimately connected. And can you say more about how we miss this, what we're missing and what's important about this kind of example?
2: I'll say something brief and see if Laurie wants to jump in. But when I think about this kind of question, I think I think it's an incredibly important question. Why do we miss this? the way we've written the book, even though we don't put it this way, it naturally suggests the following way of answering the question, which is it needs to be broken into two parts. And one is that we have to see that there are ideologies that make it hard to see individual cases in which the mistreatment of animals and the subjugation of human beings is connected. So the case of the palm oil industry and Um, related human suffering and the suffering of, say, orangutans. And there are other cases, obviously. And then, but that's not enough even. Once we get in view individual cases, if you're actually going to appreciate their significance, if you also have to do the critical work, something that we were both gesturing at just now, to register that the relevant connections aren't accidental and one-off, but structural and
1: systemic. Yeah, I think what you've said there is really important, and there's a lot more we could say, but there's one clarification that I just want to add here, and that is that the idea that we're both getting at, that there's these structural systemic issues that need to be seen clearly and resisted, it's very different than talking about institutions that cause the suffering. So often you hear in these discussions of animal ethics, some people will take up the idea that, right, when they hear this critique of structures and systems, they think, oh, right, that's the food industry. And that's not what we're talking about. Sure. The food industry is a structure that exists within otherwise horrific system of violence against humans and animals. But when we're talking about structures and systems, we're, as Alice said, we're taking a deeper dive. We're looking at these things, both historically, Um, And to some extent, insofar as we're able economically to be able to think about the forms of instrumentalization and disposability that are necessary for these kinds of violent institutions to exist in the first place.
0: What comes to mind is the meatpacking plant. And uh, you you talk about this episode and I first encountered this episode or description uh, in I think it was Fast Food Nation, that book, and I think that was made into a film, although I didn't see the film but it talks about the way in which people on the assembly line or disassembly line, as it were, because they're they're cutting the meat, are standing so close together. So at the time you're talking about this, this is during the pandemic. So there's not only uh, a risk in terms of spreading uh, the virus and in, uh, in terms of uh, not maintaining the six feet social distancing measure, as it were, but they're also at risk because they're they're they have to cut and disassemble the carcasses so quickly it's very easily that they can hurt themselves with their sharp knives or hurt other people. And there are certain meats that, or animals that cannot be uh, disassembled mechanically. And I think cows are one of them because they can't breed them to be the same size. Whereas with, correct me if I'm wrong, as I understand chickens, they can, they can mechanically separate because they actually breed them to be the same size. And there's all these ways we're doing this. You know, if no one has heard about what we do to, to make things efficient are, and are these the kinds of historical, systematic things uh, that you have in mind in helping to understand the, the deeper insight or deeper look into what's going on with our treatment of animals and ourselves?
2: To a significant extent, yes. So one of the things we're doing is following lines of historical research and also social theoretical research that reveal ways in which, for centuries market-organized societies have focused on production and, and de-emphasized social reproduction. To a certain extent, these some of these themes are inspired by volume one of Marx's Capital. They come in some of their original forms from there, but in ways that involve treating animals and also other parts of nature, but also human beings involved in social reproduction, women and also um, racialized and indigenous people who are put in a position to do care and subsistence work, all of these social contributions are treated as free resources. And an extension of that larger background is the simple commodification of animals and their reproductive capacities. And so within that context, it doesn't even really strike people This is part of what the challenge of critique here is. It doesn't strike people as terribly shocking that we have genetically engineered chickens to all be the same size, to grow at the same rate, to be ready for what is called harvest at the same time. That is some of the background where we're talking about things like profit motives, which during the pandemic, this would be one of the chapters of the book, Lead to pressures on the speed at which animals are, so to say, processed in industrial slaughterhouses, which are awful for the animals and
1: also really harmful to human beings. And if I could just add, there's another feature of this that we also talk about and find really important. And that's the way that all of this, as you said, Todd, is hidden from view. So part of the whole sort of nature of the structure is to keep these things out of sight out of mind they're in a way they happen in nondescript places that people don't think about and that's not an accident is our point that's on purpose that there's a so a way in which linguistically visually socially politically these things are out of our consciousness and they're meant to be so part of the cognitive dissonance that you were talking about at the beginning happens when these things that we don't think about enter into our field of vision as it were into enter our minds and we think wait what's happening exactly that's part of i think another issue that we address
3: living philosophy is brought to you by philosophytoyou.com your public and applied philosophy hotspot for innovation inspiration and intelligence
4: are you unhappy with your academic career do you need help transitioning to the next chapter Hillary Hutchinson is a career coach specializing in helping academics leave academia. Academia is an unusual place with extremely rigid standards for promotion and due to structural issues with severely limited opportunities. The decision to leave academia can happen at any time in an academic career, whether just graduating with a PhD, deciding mid-career that the academic lifestyle or work content no longer appeals, or even figuring out what to do on retiring, After a long academic career, let Hillary help you now to figure out who you are, what you want to do, and start putting a strategic plan into place to achieve your own dreams. It's not about who you are, it's about who you want to be. Contact Hillary at transitioningyourlife.com or call 843 225 3224 to set up a complimentary appointment and find out more about how she works with clients. In this bold new book, the Infinite Staircase, What the Universe Tells Us About Life, Ethics, and Mortality, high tech's best known strategist, Jeffrey Moore, makes a groundbreaking contribution to the search for meaning in a secular era. Two questions fundamental to human existence have always been the metaphysical where do I fit in the grand scheme of things, and the ethical how should I behave? Religion is no longer a source of answers for many people, and nothing has replaced it. Moore uses his signature framework-based approach to answer these questions, taking readers on an intellectual roller coaster ride through physics, chemistry, biology, the social sciences, and the humanities. Along the way, he builds a metaphorical ladder that leads from the Big Bang to the need for ethical action in our daily lives. Combining an extraordinary range of scholarship with an accessible and entertaining writing style, The Infinite Staircase provides a coherent and unified platform for a full human life. The Infinite Staircase is available everywhere fine books are sold. Order your copy today.
3: Understanding and relating to other people is key to the success of individuals and organizations. But doing so can be difficult and involves more art than science. Fortunately, there is a branch of philosophy called hermeneutics that explores how we can better understand and relate to others according to the stories we tell, what we say, and the histories and cultures that form who we are. Hermeneutics in Real Life is an online project that hosts virtual conversations with academics and professionals discussing how hermeneutics matters to our work and our lives and how it can be a catalyst for positive change. The conversations assume no prior background in hermeneutics and are hosted monthly, open to everyone and free of charge. To learn more about participating in these conversations, please visit our website at www. The letter H, the letter I, the letter N, the letter R, the letter L.org. That's www.hinrl.org.
0: One question for the two of you is: do you see a practical way to help catalyze change within the system as opposed to just educating each one of us and hoping that things change slowly? And the other, the other point is. Here's an example from someone who works within the venture capital industry and and audience members have to bear with me because I mentioned this particular guest quite a bit. I recently did a podcast with Arvind Gupta, who's a geneticist by training, and he's a venture capitalist, and he started up IndieBio and now works for Mayfield and their venture venture capital firms. But IndieBio in particular funds companies that are fighting climate change, fighting cancer, and uh, one recent – well, not recent, but one of his – Uh, Big signs, as it were, was, I forgot the name of the the company, but they're providing clean meats. So clean meats are cell-based meats they grow in the lab and they sell. And so I asked him, he's obviously concerned from a moral outlook about, look, we have to stop climate change and these kinds of things. And I asked him to try to connect the dots between his ethical outlook and what he does as a venture capitalist. And he says he cannot bring morality into his business which was an odd thing for me to hear because in a way his whole business is about changing things from an ethical perspective or that have ethical significance. But he, but he put it like this. He said, if I funded everything that was simply ethically motivated, he would be a failure. And the reason why is because he was convinced, you just cannot change people's behavior by convincing them of a different moral outlook. And as I mentioned to audience members before, because I bring this episode up a lot, it's a really intriguing one for me as a philosopher, Martin Bunzel was a previous guest, and he is pro-changing the climate in view of climate change. But he also, as a philosopher, kind of threw his hands up and said, we're not going to change things from moral arguments. We have to change behavior. And so we have to find different ways to incentivize behavior change. And arguing and showing people why their view might be right or wrong is not really going to work. So to go back to Arvind Gupta, his whole point was clean meat's. Are going to work not because they're better ethically or morally or they're responsible. There, there's no animal suffering or, as far as I'm aware, there's no animal suffering or very little. But he says it's a better product. It tastes better. It's better for you. There's no prions. You know things like that. And he said that's why it works. And that's what I, that's how I have to think as a venture capitalist. And so it was a kind of, there was a cognitive dissonance for me and I, that I asked him to explain and. At the end of the day, he came down and says, Okay, so maybe I am an activist, but I don't think about it like that when I'm doing my business. So, those are two different approaches to addressing crises. One is to say, We can have a philosophical analysis and it's important, but at the end of the day, we got to focus on something very superficial, and that's just behavior. And whether or not we have the right moral arguments is a different question. But for me as a philosopher, that's very unsatisfactory because I, I want to see a kind of unified picture of behavior tracking. Philosophical reasons and thinking. But I don't, what are, sorry for that long segue to the question, but what are your thoughts on that?
2: Well, I mean, there's thoughts that we have that are expressed in the book. Obviously, we're familiar with the kinds of arguments, uh, sometimes in philosophy, they're called, you know, arguments from ethical response, um, ethics of responsibility. And there is the idea that we're, that, that we don't in the book dispute, we don't use this term in the book, but we don't dispute that we sometimes use tools of a system that we want to put behind us, but it would go against the grain of the book. And I think it is confused to think that we're going to use venture capitalism, which is so caught up (laughs) within so much an engine of the system, which is damaging the natural world and harming animals and desperately harming human beings to address our problems in any meaningful way. But what we're talking about isn't changing things through moral arguments alone, although the suggestions that we make are the products of communities of reflection, thinking about these things. But we're talking about a lot of activist work that's already happened, some of which takes the form of modeling multispecies communities that operate on care-related principles, if that's not an oxymoron to put it that way, the supporting of relationships of care instead of operating in, in the way that our communities tend to do where social goods depend on economic relations. And one can have vulnerabilities insofar as one's placed in a disadvantaged position within those relations. And we're also talking about people who are modeling in protest movements, uh, forms of relation that aren't fully separate, things like you know protests at Standing Rock, things like youth climate strikes, Where there is an attempt to model a new way of thinking about our world, but from within it. So, in terms of what the form of interrelation looks like, it may be imperfect, but it's still a great guide to what it is to think I can respond meaningfully to something that seems overwhelming. And I just want to go back to this
1: point that we make throughout the book, both explicitly and also implicitly, that the current systems and the current structures that the venture capitalists are participating in are part and parcel of the problems that we're trying to address. So we can't really solve the problems of these structures by switching around little widgets within them. Ultimately, we need to rethink in a radical way, our social relations. From our point of view in the book, What we need to do is think not individually about motivation or not even individually about behavior change, but think about collective resistance to these fundamental structures that have led us to the the brink of ecocide.
0: So there's a way in which the motivation of capitalist industry can take something that might potentially be good and then use it for its own benefit. And there there are a lot of examples, um, you know, with the fair trade label, for example, when that came out. It's like, okay, so if I'm going to buy something, at least I'll make it fair trade. So there's some benefit to the farmer who might be growing the the coffee beans. But then, you know, there's big companies will say, right, let's get on the fair trade bandwagon. So they'll have an aspect of their business doing fair trade. And then the rest of the business is just going to continue doing what it normally does. There's a huge machinery that is operative that we're caught up in that's difficult to resist. And I suppose on a more practical note, I was wondering, and and I think this captures, maybe it doesn't capture what what I'm trying to get at, but I think this one, this episode stood out very clearly for me in the book when I was reading it. And uh, it's the one about the dairy farmer and you quote the dairy farmer and the dairy farmer says, if you eat dairy, the responsible thing to do is eat some veal too. So baby cows, young cows, male cows every year a cow has a calf in order to keep the milk flowing. And that might be some, there's another thing that we probably are not aware of that we're getting our milk, but then how do we keep, how does the production of milk keep happening? Well, you got to keep the cow, the cows having or giving birth or producing Uh, in order to produce milk, they need to produce calves. And, And the farmer says about half these calves are bull calves. And so these bull calves either have to be eaten by presumably by humans or because the farmers can't afford economically to raise these cows. They, they let them starve or they kill them. And that was just shocking to me because I wasn't aware of that kind of fact. And so there's that kind of glaring issue within the system that we're talking about, but then there's a a, a practical side and which relates to the whole edifice of, of capitalism, I, I suppose. And it's, do you think that there's a way where we might not be vegetarian or vegan and still be able to live ethically respectfully with animals. Is there something about this new way of thinking about a social model of coexistence with species that allows for some kind of respect? And this might open the question of what does it mean to respect animals? What does it mean for animals to have dignity? And I don't know how true this cliche is, but one often hears about indigenous societies, particularly in North America That when they engaged in the killing of an animal like a buffalo, there was it was part of a larger normative outlook in which, although the animal did die and give up its life to be food, there was some kind of way in which that practice respected the standing of the animal within the order of the natural world, as it were, because it wasn't just a natural world, it was a natural world imbued with a lot of normative ideas and concepts.
1: This is Laurie. I want to sort of break this into maybe three parts, but first part is just to, to help your listeners sort of get a picture of industrial dairy production first. And then the second part is really a question about whether or not those of us in sort of cities or close to cities, not indigenous folks of a particular sort should or can Um, respectfully eat other animals. And then the third part would be about how to think about these more different sort of worldviews, different sort of ways of being in relation. So those are the three parts. Let me be quick about the first. And you already mentioned this, that sort of industrial dairy production involves confinement of millions of cows who are impregnated to produce milk, not for their offspring, but for human consumption. And they produce milk for approximately 10 months after giving birth. Their infants are taken away immediately so that they're not taking the milk that is used for human consumption and The cows, the dairy cows themselves, the the, the cows who are producing that milk, go through cycles of pregnancy and lactation for three to seven years, and then they're usually killed. Now, cows can live, dairy cows, female cows can live up to 10, 12, 15 years. So they're killed young. Now, what happens to their calves? Well, the calves are separated immediately, as I said. The females are usually used to replace the mothers that were making the milk they will grow to be milk producers themselves and go through that same cycle of pregnancy and lactation and early death the male calves of course as you mentioned they used to be used for veal but the demand for veal has dropped as soon as people really understood just how cruel especially cruel in a violent industry, taking baby calves, chaining them so they can't move, so their meat remains, quote unquote, tender, and then being slaughtered early. People were like, wait, that's not something I want to participate in. And so the veal industry really did fall off. So many of the calves that are born to dairy cows are useless and they are left to die and it's what the industry has called their own dirty little secret. So these male calves are killed regularly because as you said, it's too expensive to do anything with else with them. So the production of dairy seems like, oh well it's not killing the animals to get their body part. but in fact it's an extraordinarily an extended, violent system of production meat production itself is also a violent food system. And so most of what's happening in industrial food production is horrific. It's as we talked about at the opening, it's horrific for the workers, it's horrific for the animals, to many it's also horrific to the farmers because the farmers are controlled by these multinational corporations. So there's a there's a lot of suffering And horror that goes on in the production of meat and dairy and eggs for that matter. So then the question is, can you do it respectfully? Well, not in this system. It seems that if you're partaking in this horrific system that harms humans and animals and the environment, I didn't even mention, and we talk a little bit about that, but there's a tremendous amount of environmental cost involved in intensive industrial animal production. So it's hard to think about respecting animals in this context. And I I think Alice will say some things about dignity, I hope, in a moment, but so I don't think it's possible in the context of thinking about our current food system to think about respectfully participating in this system of exploitation, oppression, and violence. Now, having said that, we also very sort of thoughtful about the ways in which other um, cultures or other humans may not be in the same situation that we're in. And this is an important fact So if you think about people who are living in the Northern territories of Canada or places where there's just not much else to eat most of the year, given that you can't grow plants, it may be that certain individuals in those communities would be able to respectfully kill and eat animals. It would largely depend on their practices in order to think of that as respectful. It's probably much more respectful than having tofu shipped from, you know, Connecticut or New York or California to sort of feed people who this isn't a traditional part of their life way. So I did want to suggest that it's difficult to think for most of of the world to think about respectfully consuming animal bodies. It's a violation of their dignity.
2: I'm not going to add too much to what Laurie said, but I did want to emphasize, I'm not sure if this was clear in what she said, although it was there, that that when we're talking about this system that a lot of us say in cities in the U.S. or in the U.K. are part of, we're not just talking about what gets called industrial animal agriculture. And the chapter of our book you were actually referring to is about non-industrial small dairy farms And we turn to that case uh, specifically, well, we have various aims in view, but, but one of them is to bring out some of the economic pressures and structures on dairy production and also subsequent animal slaughter in those contexts to bring out how The economic pressures, although they may not be quite as horrifying, they may not uh, be quite as shocking, are often applied in ways that are just as painful to animals. And animals are really commodified. Their reproductive capacities, their milk-producing capacities in those contexts also And when we say that this is a violation of animal dignity, because that is a form of the raising and killing and eating of animals in our system, it's not industrial, but it's still in our system. When we talk about it as a violation of animal dignity, one classic reference we have is that to treat a being with dignity is to treat it above any price. So one of the ways in which our system makes it nearly impossible to raise and eat animals while treating them with dignity is that it seems to be simply integral to the way that we do these things, even on small farms, that they're treated as commodities. There are things that, I mean, ultimately, even a small farm has to make a profit. It has to make that profit on the bodies of the animals in question. I think both of us agree, and it's not a, again, it's not a big topic. It's not a topic in, in the book that we're writing right now that we're talking about, that one has a lot to learn from uh, critical disability studies, from feminism, about the importance of accepting vulnerabilities and dependencies in human life. And the urge of some activists to think that there's something intrinsically debased about a relationship because it's a dependent one is a kind of confusion about what our own lives are like.
0: That's a very good point. At least my reading of the Western history of philosophy is that there's always this assumption that the human self or subject or agent is somehow uh, privileged in a way that has either access to perfect or near-perfect information, or is somehow capable in ways that we ideally think a human should be capable, and particularly when it comes to ethical, political, social relations, if we focus more on our dependency, that might open the ways in which we might think about other relations. As a former guest on this podcast put it, uh, I don't know if you know her, uh, Krista Thomason, she's a Kantian philosopher, but part of her message in the podcast was, we have to learn to accept failure and learn how to fail well. And that was actually reiterated by Anna Muda, who was also a guest on This Philosopher and she does a lot with hermeneutics and crafts. So that I, I just like that point a lot. We've reached that point in the podcast where I get to ask my guests the two closing questions. And the first question is for each of you, Laurie and Alice, has there been any one philosophy, idea or philosopher that has been central and influential to your work and the way you live your life?
1: This is Laurie. When I was quite young, I was really taken by utilitarianism. And that was the idea that, again, I was a first year young student, 16, 17 in college. I thought, oh yes, I'm, I'm attracted to these ideas. I grew out of that. And I think that one of the really important ways in which I was able to grow out of it was to really focus on what was missing from that perspective. And so I got very uncomfortable thinking from the contextless point of view of the universe perspective. So I was looking around to see who's thinking differently about these matters. And of course, Iris Murdoch is a terrific person to turn to to think about issues of moral perception. I think she's been really inspiring to me, but also to us. And she plays a really important, even if it's implicit, role in our thinking in the book, particularly in chapter six of the book where we talk about seeing. But she's in other places as well. And basically, what one of the things that's so important about what Iris Murdoch did in her philosophical outlook was argue that we need to sort of critically look at and reshape our own sensibilities, our own perceptual sort of understanding and abilities to bring the world into better focus that's relevant to the ethical concerns that we express in the book and that are all around us. So of course, in doing that, we have to pay a good amount of attention to all sorts of things that are around us. And these things themselves are shaped by sort of earlier instances of, as we've talked about, linguistic practices, historical ideas, ideologies of various sorts. So fundamentally, I think if we're going to bring human and animal lives and relationships into view in the way that we argue in animal crisis, we really need to op- resist oppressive social structures that are distorting our perspectives. And one of those social structures is the structure that led me to this in the first place, which was utilitarianism. So I'm really thankful for both the work that Iris Murdoch did, but also Alice's deep understanding of that tradition, which has been really good. So I'll turn it over to Alice now.
2: Yeah, I found this question really easy to think about because the work of Core Diamond, I'm not going to talk about Iris Murdoch, but core Diamond's also a great, great reader of, of Iris Murdoch, so she's there in what I'm saying. But the work of Cora Diamond has had a really undeniably central influence on my philosophical work, and that includes my thinking about animals. And I, it is a, an autobiographical story for me too. I encountered Diamond's work and not only that, I had the really good fortune to meet her when I was an undergraduate in the late 1980s when I was first trying to find my way in philosophy and I already had an interest in animal ethics. And here's another overlap with Laurie. One thing that was particularly important for me was Diamond's pro-animal response to Peter Singer's utilitarian animal liberation. She wrote a 1978 paper called Eating Meat and Eating People. And in it, she makes a move that Singer has never properly registered or even responded to. She fundamentally challenges metaphysical and epistemological assumptions that inform his particular animal-oriented utilitarianism. And more precisely, she asks us to see that non-human animals, she would say the same thing about human beings, These creatures aren't there for us apart from a web of ways of responding to them. And the influence of her account of how humans and animals enter moral thought is there in animal crisis in our insistence on a way of thinking about the lives of animals that you asked us about earlier that opens the door for critique.
0: The second question is, do you have any parting words of wisdom for our audience?
2: Would you like to go first, Laurie? No, why don't you go, Alice? Okay, I'm happy to go first. So for me, one of the powerful things about animal crisis is it centers on an exercise of critically examining a set of inherited philosophical tools. We look at some different theories that have dominated contemporary animal ethics, and we try to show that these tools are wholly inadequate for a meaningful response to the current catastrophe. And the inadequacies have to do with how animal ethics and its mainstream guys has grown up in isolation from critical social theories that are designed to examine and criticize historically embedded social structures that reliably reproduce suffering and harm. That's what we've been talking about. So that's the particular limitation that we set out to address and overcome. And I I really think that by itself, it's immeasurably important. But there's also a general philosophical moral in there that interests me as a philosopher, And it's a lesson about how doing productive work and philosophy involves a kind of difficulty that isn't merely intellectual, that involves a willingness to round on and examine the methods and categories that we've inherited. And I think of this as something that can be intensely demanding in a way that requires something that I would really call courage. But it's exciting, too, because to take it seriously, and this would be the, the moral if there is one. To take it seriously is to
1: see that it's possible to think well from anywhere. And I guess my sort of parting word of wisdom, as it were, and this is something that we end animal crisis with, is this idea that we can resist these systems with care-centered strategies. And these care-centered strategies that Alice alluded to a little bit earlier in multi-species communities where And sanctuaries where animals are being cared for, it can happen at both an individual level, at a collective level, and also at a political level. So these caring communities can be built on mutual aid, shared resources, localized decision-making, a shared desire for mutual thriving. And animals are an important part of these caring communities. So creating these caring communities, I think with others helps us in our solidarity. It helps us to develop solidarity with others, but it also allows us to resist. And in the spirit of the feminist writer Sarah Ahmad, who we briefly quote in Animal Crisis, she says that the work of self-care is about the creation of community, fragile communities, assembled out of the experiences of being shattered. We reassemble ourselves through the ordinary, everyday, and often painstaking work of looking after ourselves, looking after each other. And we think that we can also see this as extending to looking after and having other animals look after us as well. So the idea then is that care within multi-species communities is a way of resisting these structures that want to deny us all meaningful, flourishing lives.
0: Lori and Alice, thank you for being a guest on Living Philosophy. I look forward to seeing more work on Animal Crisis and our relation to animals in the future.
2: Thanks so much, Todd. It was great to talk.
0: If you would like to know more about Alice and Lori's research and publications and their book, Animal Crisis, please see the podcast blurb for related links. Animal Crisis is available at any major online bookstore and via the Polity Press website. As always, the podcast blurb will include more information about the topics discussed in this episode, including links to our sponsors. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Philosophy to You, Transitioning Your Life, Hermeneutics in Real Life, and The Infinite Staircase. If you would like to become a sponsor, please get in touch with us via the Philosophy to you.com website. And don't forget to rate and review our podcasts and help spread the word. My name is Dr. Todd May. Thank you for joining us on Living Philosophy And I hope you'll join us for our next podcast. Until then, don't just read philosophy, live philosophically.